Gresham College presents The Economics of the Very Long Run From Fire to Finance in Two Million Years by Professor Mark Schaffer, FRSE, Heriot Watt University. Uh, first of all, I'd like to start with some, some thank yous to, to Gresham College for hosting the lecture, for, to Michael for uh, suggesting that I tap, tackle this topic uh, in public, uh, and to my students for having listened to me and uh, talk about this in the past and given me valuable feedback. Um, and I'd like to start with some caveats. Uh, in particular, I'm just an economist. I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I'm not a paleontologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not a demographer. I'm not even an economic historian. Um, I'm just an economist. Uh, but economists, econ economics and e economists are famous and sometimes infamous <laughs> for not letting their lack of expertise uh, stop them from addressing topics outside their home turf. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing. Um, and finally, I need to start with an apology, uh, which is uh, the advertised title of my talk. It's the economics of the very long run from fire to finance in two million years. Uh, and I'm still happy with the main title, but I'm not so happy with the subtitle. Um, at the time, it seemed like a good idea, and I, I have a soft spot for alliteration. Um, but, uh, and, and fire is fine, because my starting point is two million years. Uh, and there's some recent work suggesting that fire figures here. Uh, but the problem with finance is that it, actually it implies an endpoint that's thousands of years too early. Uh, so my apologies in advance for, for misleading you and implying that uh, I won't have a lot to say about finance. Um, uh, for implying that I, have, I will have a lot to say about finance, and actually I won't. Um, fire, though, is a different story. Um, my end point is today, uh, the era of modern economic growth that started with the Industrial Revolution two centuries ago and continues today. Uh, my starting point is, roughly speaking, the starting point of the human race. Uh, the emergence of the first members of our species in Africa about two million years ago. So, what's the big picture? Um, for two million years, until about 1600, 1800, thereabouts, uh, we can characterize the economic history of the human race actually very, very simply. Um, population grows very slowly. Uh, total income, uh, GDP, if you, if you could value all goods and services produced by everyone in the world, um, this, is, this would be total income. Uh, that also grows very slowly. In fact, population and total income grow at essentially the same rate, um, and the result is that average living standards, or income per capita, GDP per capita, whatever you want to call it, is basically constant. Uh, and this is the Malthusian era, um, and it lasted two million years. The Industrial Revolution starts around 1600, 1800 or thereabouts, uh, depending on your perspective and uh, what you think the causes are. I'll just say 1800 is a shorthand. It's just meant as a shorthand. Um, now, the post-Malthusian era, uh, the era of modern economic growth, is very, very different from the preceding two million years. Um, Okay, the Industrial Revolution starts in England, spreads to the rest of Europe and portions of the New World, and I'll call that the West uh, as a shorthand. Um, in the West, there's rapid growth in total income, and population initially grows as well, but not as rapidly. And then population growth declines, and population levels start to stabilize, but income keeps on growing. And the result in the West is rapid and sustained growth in living standards. Um, in most of the rest of the world, and I'll, my shorthand for most of the rest of the world will be the rest, uh, income growth is pretty slow uh, and is matched more or less 
by population growth. And the result in the rest is the continuation of the Malthusian-era living standards. And the result is what Pomerantz has called the Great Divergence. The West gets fabulously rich, uh, the rest stays poor, and you have some countries in between. A few countries leave the rest to join the West, uh, but they're the exceptions. So, the outline uh, for the rest of my talk is, is as follows. Um, first, I'll talk about the key features of the Malthusian era in a little more detail and sketch out the Malthusian model. I'll discuss two developments in the Malthusian era, which uh, the starting point two million years ago when Homo erectus first appears, uh, and I'll discuss the appearance of agriculture after the end of the last ice age. And then I'll turn to two centuries of post-Malthusian era and modern economic growth. Uh, and then finally, I'll try to tie it all together. Uh, in the form of some hypothetical questions. Um, uh, was the emergence of modern economic growth uh, inevitable? Right. So, the big picture, some, 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 some numbers. Uh, Brad DeLong, who was actually a contemporary classmate of, of, of ours as, uh, as an undergraduate, has assembled some numbers on population and total income and income per capita, in other words, living standards, going back to 1 million B.C., uh, one million will do for my purposes. Um, the picture for the Malthusian era is, as I've, met, as I've described it already, population growth is positive but very, very slow. On the order of, I make, um, some, I make sure I get the zeros right, 0.05% per year. Uh, total income grows at the same rate as population, and since total income and population are growing at basically the same rate, income per capita is basically constant. Uh, DeLong uses uh, data from Madison, who uses $1990 for his valuations. Um, in $1990, the average living standards in the Malthusian era are something like $400 per person per year. Um, now, of course, there are fluctuations, uh, and while the fluctuations may have been big if you happen to be living in the Malthusian era, so plus or minus a couple of hundred dollars is a lot if you're living off of $400, uh, but the, these are tiny fluctuations compared to the standards of, of living we, we see today. Uh, with the start of the Industrial Revolution, this changes a lot. Okay? Population growth and income growth both um, accelerate. Uh, in the West, income growth outstrips population growth. Population growth accelerates but then slows down, and the result today um, is that population levels in the West are close to stable, but income continues to grow at a couple of percent uh, per annum. Um, in the year 2000, income per capita in the West in 1990 dollars was about $23,000. Uh, about 57 times higher than in the Malthusian era. Uh, in the rest, it's a mixed picture. Uh, uh, there's a continuum of countries, uh, some of which are becoming rich and appear to be joining the West, uh, some are still desperately, desperately poor, and their average living standards are not much different from those in the Malthusian era. Uh, now, there are some huge measurement problems here. Uh, but for the most part, if we try to take the measurement problems into account, they don't actually change the big picture. And for the big measurement problem, it actually ex it accentuates this, this, this view. Um, now, I've, first of all, just quickly, I've, I've presented these data in terms of population and income, but that was kind of cheating. In fact, when people do these calculations, they, 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 come, they have estimates of population and estimates of living standards, and this total GDP figure, a total income figure, comes from multiplying the two. Um, so if you have doubts about the, the number there for total GDP at 1 million BC, um, it doesn't matter. 
Um, that's, just an, that's just an artificial number. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the picture of a population of hunter-gatherers with living standards not wildly different from modern or recent hunter-gatherers is, is, is probably pretty accurate. Um, another problem is that these are living standards based on, or typically based on, estimates of uh, material living standards. So things like um, art and music and so forth are just left out, and there's not much we can do about that. Um, but the big measurement problem is one that's familiar from index number theory, um, and this is the, the new goods problem. When we value output of cons or, or consumption of goods for two different periods, and we want to aggregate them, what prices do we use to, to aggregate? Um, the, should we use the prices for the later period, or should we use the prices for the earlier period? Um, now, if the, er the periods are not too far apart, it's not a problem. But if the periods are a few decades apart, then we start running into substantial problems. And if the periods are a few centuries apart, let alone millennia or longer, um, and one of the periods is today, uh, then we get big problems. Um, now, the small version of this problem is that new goods are expensive when they first appear, uh, but then technological progress means that they get cheaper over time. I am old enough to remember the, the arrival of the first digital watches, and I'm looking at the audience, it looks like a majority, I think, remember the first digital watches. Remember the Pulsar. The Pulsar. Uh, the first Pulsar watch sold for some uh, thousands of dollars in the 1970s. Uh, today, a cheap digital watch costs something like a thousandth, thousandth of this um, in, in real terms. So if we value today's output uh, and consumption of digital watches at today's prices, it's a tiny fraction of what someone in the 1970s would have valued it at. Um, from the perspective of that person in the 1970s, we are very, we're, much, we're richer than we might think. Um, now, the bigger version of this problem is that digital watches didn't exist before the 1970s. And in fact, a couple of centuries ago, most of the goods that we see around us today um, just didn't exist at all. So what would somebody from 1800 have paid for things that we treat as tri trivial and cheap? Not just digital watches, but smartphones, antibiotics, um, an internet connection. Um, it, it, it's a big problem. But the good news from my perspective is that this just accentuates uh, the difference between the Malthusian era and the post-Malthusian era. Um, we are even more fabulously rich compared to our ancestors than the uh, DeLong and Madison data suggest. Uh, DeLong has uh, constructed a, a rough-and-ready theory-based approximation to take account of the new goods problem, um, and the effect is to decrease the uh, Malthusian average living standard in 1990 dollars by a factor of about four. So it takes it down to about $100 per person per year in 1990 dollars. So instead of being merely fabulously rich compared to our ancestors, we are whatever four times fabulously rich is. Okay. Uh, now, I think I've made the case for trying to look at the Malthusian era as a single era, uh, and the prism through which I want to look at this period is, not surprisingly, the Malthusian model. Uh, so here's a quote from Thomas Malthus's essay on the uh, principle of population from 1798. Uh, the increase of population is necessarily limited by the means of subsistence, and population does invariably increase when the means of subsistence increase. Uh, this is a powerful, powerful idea. 
Um, Malthus is arguably the first modern growth theorist, theorist of economic growth. Uh, the father, he's the father of modern population ecology, um, and he's the grandfather of the theory of evolution. And I say arguably, but actually I don't think you need to insert the arguably. Um, it's ironic that he formulates his theory just as the world is beginning to leave the Malthusian era. Um, now, the basic Malthusian model, um, and this is not how you might have read it if you read it in Malthus, but I think this is, a, this is a modern economist's view of the Malthusian model, it is that it has three components, um, uh, equilibrium, stability, and growth. Um, equilibrium means population equilibrium, births approximately equal deaths. And so a population that's in equilibrium in this way will be approximately constant for a given environment. Um, and the environment determines what the equilibrium po uh, population is. So to borrow, to borrow a term from population ecology, um, the equilibrium population is determined by the carrying capacity of the environment. Okay, uh, stability. Now, stability means that if we perturb the system, if the population is some, for some reason below equilibrium, then it's going to increase back to the equilibrium level. If population is for some reason above equilibrium, then it's going to decrease back to the equilibrium level. So, for example, say the population is below the carrying capacity of the environment, so food and resources are plentiful, mortality is low, life expectancy is high, births exceed deaths, deaths the population grows. Um, if the population is above the carrying capacity of the environment, then food and resources are in scarce supply, mortality is high, life expectancy is low, deaths exceed births, and the population comes down. Okay. Um, the last component of the Malthusian model is growth. Um, if the carrying capacity of the environment increases permanently, say there's some new technology invented or new lands discovered, then the population increases to match the increased carrying capacity. Now, how is this different from a population ecology model applied to some single species? Uh, actually, the answer, not very, not much. Uh, Malthusian model has these three components, equilibrium, stability, and growth, and the first two components are the basic components of a simple population ecology model. In a simple population ecology model, equilibrium is where births equals deaths. Um, you, this could be a, a, a model of deer in forests, gray, gray squirrels and nuts, uh, it doesn't whatever. Um, in fact, it's actually common to cite Malthus uh, in textbooks as the, the first to formulate these basic principles of, of population ecology. What's different uh, about the Malthusian model is the third component, which is growth, which is, uh, Malthus explicitly uh, addresses this, and the model wouldn't be a growth model. We wouldn't make this claim that uh, Malthus was arguably the first modern growth theorist um, if it didn't have this component. Um, and in the, in the Malthusian model, um, the, uh, well, in Malthus's formulation, the carrying capacity of the human environment increases um, at a slow, late, slow rate through bringing new lands under cultivation and introducing new methods of agriculture. Okay? More food, and therefore the equilibrium population goes up. Okay, now, how is this different, uh, how is this different from models of evolution and natural selection? Uh, well, actually, the resemblance is a lot more than coincidental. Um, if you uh, Darwin, in his autobiography, says, um, uh, maybe to save time, I'll paraphrase, I was reading Malthus and I got this really cool idea, roughly speaking. Um, now, uh, if you think this is just a coincidence, uh, most of you know that Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace independently came up with the uh, theory of evolution. And here's what Wallace says um, in his autobiography. Uh, and I will paraphrase to save time. I was reading Malthus, and I came up with this really cool idea. Um, 
So, it, so it's, uh, when I say that Malthus is, was arguably the godfather or grandfather of the theory of evolution, I, didn't, I don't think I needed to say uh, arguably. So how is the Malthusian model different from models of evolution and natural selection? Um, the Malthus, it, they, they share with the Malthusian model uh, the, the two, first two components, equilibrium and, and stability, and as they share with, with you know, the way population ecologists uh, approach simple modeling of, of, of populations of animal species. What's different is how long-range cha change takes place. Um, in evolution, it's natural variation uh, mutation and so forth, combined with natural selection, uh, that provides the dynamics. So you get a new mutation, uh, and that provides an individual member of the species with greater fitness. This is what the evolutionary biologists call it. This is what I had to call it in that paper Michael referred to. Um, because of this, the uh, individual has more offspring than the other members of the species, and the new characteristic spreads through the population. And eventually, it's, it's seen in, in, in all members. Um, in the Malthusian model, human activity itself moves the stable equilibrium population. Now, this human activity could be uh, bringing new land under cultivation, uh, which was the natural way to think about it in Malthus's time, uh, but can it can also be new ideas, tools, methods, inventions, organizations, uh, in a word, innovations. Um, all of these innovations can change the environment and its capacity for sustaining human populations. Um, and the spread of replication of these, uh, uh, of these ideas, uh, Richard Dawkins has dubbed them memes, um, does not require genes. Uh, individuals and groups learn from uh, and copy each other, uh, and new ideas spread through the population as a result. Uh, this last point, uh, which is the role of innovation and new ideas uh, in generating e in economic growth, is one that I'll uh, be returning to. Now, um, I have a uh, uh, Greg Clark has a very nice book on the, a short. Uh, I think what's the exact title? History of the uh, history of the world, economic history of the world. Uh, and I've borrowed the an exposition from him. I think I'm doing pretty well for time, so I'm going to have a quick go at going through it. Um, so uh, it's a it's a uh, economists, as you probably know, or if you don't, um, you you won't be surprised to know. We're very fond of of diagram diagrams where two lines cross. We really really like that. Uh, and so you won't be too surprised to, to learn that my, my diagrammatic analysis, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because I have two diagrams in each of which two lines cross. Okay, so the first graph, uh, we, we can see equilibrium and stability and how they follow from the relationship between birth rates and death rates and material living standards. And the second graph connects this relationship to, to, the, um, to the carrying capacity of, of the environment and how that determines the population. So um, here's, the, here's a death rate, and the death rate slopes down because on the horizontal axis we have material living standards, income per, per person, and when times are really good, people live a long time and the mortality rate is low. And when times are really bad, the mortality rate is really high. So that slopes down, that's the key one. Um, the birth rate, it doesn't really matter whether you think the birth rate slopes up with, so that uh, in good times uh, we have more children than we do in bad times, or whether or not it slopes down because you think in, in, in bad times we have, um, we have fewer rather than more. It doesn't really matter so long as it doesn't, so long as it, is, so long as it, as it crosses the death rate line. That's all that matters. 
Okay? And where the birth rate and death rate lines cross, that's where we have our Y star. Economists like to use the letter Y for income. In fact, they like to use an uppercase Y for total income and a lowercase Y for income per person. So that's lowercase uh, Y, and Y star is the equilibrium Y. Okay, so uh, the other graph relates uh, technology and living standards, and that's a downward, that's a downward sloping line. Um, why is it uh, the, the, uh, the economic, this is the, the technology schedule or productivity schedule, and it captures the feature that for a given environment, a larger population will have lower average living standards. Pressure of population unavailable resources, say. Um, the economics jargon is declining marginal product of labor, but it's really not very hard to see. Um, if a hunter-gatherer population or a farming community experiences a doubling of population, it's going to have to bring into use additional lands which it wasn't previously using. And those why wasn't it using those previous lands? Because they weren't as good as the lands it were, they were using. Okay, so let's try to put it all together. Uh, we put it all together like this, and so on the horizontal axis, you can see that we have material living standards in both. Okay. So in the top, we see where, where's the population in equilibrium, where, where does the birth rate equal the death rate, that tells us Y star, and then we go down to the bottom diagram, and we go to Y star, and where that crosses the technology line, we read over to the left, and that gives us uppercase N star, N is for population, Y, I don't know, but economists like to use the word, the letter N for population, that gives us the equilibrium population. Okay, so let's say we introduce a new technology. I'll do, uh, my, my students told me that if I'm going to do this, I should use two colors, so red. What happens initially is that initially the population is, is, is fixed, but now living is much easier. There's, you can get more food out of existing resources, and so material living standards go up. Uh, because material living standards go up, now the birth rate is above the death rate. Mortality has fallen because we have higher living standards. So what, what does that mean? Well, because the death rate is below the birth rate, the population starts to increase. The population starts, mean the, because the population increases, we eventually end up at this new higher population, which is our new N star, and we now have the same living standards, but a higher population. This is roughly speaking the story of the, mouth, two, the first two million years of our existence. Right. Which brings me to fire. Okay, uh, when did we become human? Um, and what does fire and, and actually cooking have to do with this? Um, the genus Homo appears about two million years ago with Homo erectus. Uh, prior to that were Australopithecines and Habilines, or early Homo. Some, some, some references I've seen say early Homo. Uh, were morphologically ape-like, but with somewhat larger brains, and we walk upright. Um, we were tool users, and these moderately larger brains may have been associated with increased meat eating, but we were still morphologically more ape-like than human, or so at least. And now, as I said, I'm not a lot of things, and one of the things I'm not is a paleontologist or a primatologist, so um, I'm just repeating what I've read. Uh, now, the break between habilines and Homo erectus is a big one and involves major morphological changes, increases in body size, loss of features associated with climbing, smaller teeth, smaller jaws, smaller guts, smaller digestive systems, um, and we become much more geographically widespread. This is important. Um, Homo erectus is the first hominid to leave Africa and was found as far as China and Southeast Asia. doesn't make it to Australia. 
Um, now, uh, Richard Rangham, uh, who is a, uh, I think he's a paleontologist, but also does, uh, sorry, he's a primatologist, but also does paleontology, um, and his co-authors um, have advanced a, a hypothesis, uh, uh, and which is that um, these major changes are the result of a new technology, fire. Um, and actually, it's not just fire, it's fire and cooking. Uh, and the implications go well beyond the, these morphological changes. This may also be when we become behaviorally human. Um, now, I should note straight away that the Rangham hypothesis is new and controversial and not generally accepted or not yet generally accepted. We'll, we'll see. Now, chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, like uh, our closest, our closest uh, rel living relatives, um, like early humans and prehumans, are hunter-gatherers. They forage for plant food, and they also hunt and eat meat, though they don't eat very much meat, um, compared, to, compared to us anyway. Um, the key difference between chimpanzees and ourselves is that they eat their food raw. Um, raw food is very hard to digest. It takes a long time to chew and a long time to pass through the gut. Um, if I remember uh, what I read, if I remember this correctly, um, chimpanzees spend something like six hours a day chewing, just chewing. I think that's right. Um, okay, and, and they have really big guts compared to us. If you picture, picture a chimpanzee, the reason it looks sort of pot-bellied is because, well, it is. It's just got a much you know, bigger, uh, longer digestive system because it has to digest all this raw food. Um, and the evolutionary consequences are, are visible in chimpanzees and also, also in our ancestors, Australopithecines, large jaws, large teeth, long guts. Now, cooking is an extremely effective method for pre-processing food. <coughs> Um, it makes food much easier to digest, the nutritional content is more easily absorbed, and modern humans uh, have much smaller jaws and teeth and much shorter guts than, than, than chimpanzees. Not just modern humans, but Homo erectus. Um, modern humans find it extremely difficult to, uh, or actually impossible, uh, to survive on a diet of purely uncooked food. This is part of uh, the, the evidence that Rangham assembles. He looks around for evidence that people can survive on a, a diet of purely raw food, and it's very difficult to construct that, very hard. All known human societies cook their food. Um, and Rangham suggests that it's the invention of fire uh, and cooking two million years ago that leads to Homo erectus. Now, this is a speculative argument, and Rangham admits this. The big gap in the argument, and, well, okay, I'm an economist, so I don't think this is not as serious for me as it is for others, um, is the absence of actual direct evidence for fire two million years ago. Um, uh, okay. Uh, now, the oldest evidence so far is about one million years ago. Uh, now, the good news, I think, is that this was published, this evidence was published less than a year, uh, less than a year ago, whereas Rangham's pa first paper, I think, is the late 90s. So he's, uh, he, there's some predictive power to this, which I think speaks in his, in his favor. The main evidence is this indirect business, that um, it's difficult for modern humans to survive purely on raw food. Um, now, Rangham argues that uh, fire and cooking bring with it a large number of morphological and behavioral changes that make us human. Short, shorter guts, smaller teeth, smaller jaws, loss of climbing abilities, larger brains. Um, our brain size goes up to, um, uh, from, uh, let's see, about uh, 600 cubic centimeters in habilines to about 900 in Homo erectus. Uh, modern humans is about 1,400, so that's a big jump. Now, the human brain is an extremely energy-intensive organ. Um, in modern humans, it accounts for something like 2.5% of body weight and 20% of energy use. It's a massive energy drain. 
Um, and the, the, now the evolutionary importance of this was pointed out by um, two biologists, Io, Io and Wheeler. Uh, they call it the expensive tissue hypothesis. Uh, Rangham's answer to, the, to this was that uh, cooking enabled the evolution of big, expensive uh, brains. Um, hairlessness is uh, an unusual feature for an ape. Uh, and uh, Wheeler's pointed out that hairlessness has a major advantage um, in hunting. Uh, humans don't overheat nearly as quickly as fur-covered animals. Um, a human hunting strategy uh, frequently involves chasing down an animal until it's exhausted, um, uh, overheated. I don't know if any, if any of you read about the... There are, the, um, there are these uh, long-distance races that are staged between humans and horses. Are you f familiar with this? Um, if it's a long enough distance, uh, humans can compete. And if, when I read about this, the, the entertaining bit was that there are um, uh, medical stations staged along the course of the race for the horses. <laughs> um, uh, now, um, uh, uh, hairlessness, uh, the cost of hairlessness is being cold at night. Uh, it's not a problem um, if you've got fire. Uh, and the... the, the uh, uh, Rangham argues also that this is when we become behaviorally uh, human. Uh, there's a reduction in sexual dimorphism, the emergence of pair bonding in modern human uh, sexual patterns. Um, this last point is the most uh, speculative, but the most appealing to econ an economist because it involves applications of game theory to an investment problem. Uh, the argument is that cooking takes time, and while the food is being cooked, it can be stolen. Um, and this is how chimpanzees behave. Uh, chimp society is very hierarchical, and those high in, the, high in the hierarchy steal food from those that are lower in the hierarchy. Um, human hunter-gatherer society is much more egalitarian. And moreover, male-female pair bonding is the usual pattern, and the standard sexual division of labor uh, in nearly all human societies, is that um, women, uh, industrial and pre-industrial, is that women cook much more than men. This is just standard. Um, now, Rangham argues that male-female cooperation emerges via um, a, uh, in a repeated game in an, in an evolutionary context. Uh, females gather food and cook, and individual females form pairwise cooperative arrangements with individuals male, individual males, and while the food's being cooked, the male guards the food. So you get a joint investment, and that joint investment extends to joint investments in children. So these are lengthy um, alliances. Um, and we can, uh, we can contrast this, if we want, with promiscuous chimpanzees. Uh, the fathers don't know who their, who their children are. Um, and when a new male arrives and takes over um, in many animal species, uh, the, the new male kills all the existing young uh, because he knows who his children aren't. Uh, and this is pretty common. Uh, now, this is pretty speculative, um, and the main, uh, well, the main competition, in, in, as far as I can make out in the literature, is uh, tool-using uh, and meat-eating, which precedes this two-million break by some hundreds of thousands of years. Meat is high-quality food. Uh, so the two competitors are about uh, technology and nutrition. So even if you don't go with Rangham and you go with uh, the expensive tissue hypothesis and meat-eating and tool-using, you actually end up with more or less the same, uh, the same kind of story, at least to an economist's eyes. Uh, so, uh, and it's basically this diagram. You get uh, new, fi new fire cooking technology, which uh, initially makes for higher living standards, but then you get a population increase and a higher population. And that's Homo erectus spreading through the, through the old world, uh, most of the old world. 
Um, my, so my perspective on this is that um, we, we can uh, see it through the prisms of both the Malthusian model, which is, which is economics, um, and through the Darwinian model, which is, which is natural selection. Um, from the Malthusian perspective, um, it's, a, um, it, it's, a, it's a huge technological advance with major social and behavioral consequences. From the Darwinian perspective, um, there's a major evolutionary impact on humans as well. This is when we stop being upright apes and we start becoming uh, humans. Now, of course, there's a new goods problem here. Uh, how do we compare living standards of different species? Uh, uh, it doesn't... It doesn't really matter, I think, to the, to, to, to the picture. The, base, the basic Malthusian model um, is in operation. Um, okay, so agriculture. Agriculture is the most important technological development between um, the emergence of, of Homo two million years ago and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it first appeared in the Middle East after the end of the last Ice Age. Uh, it subsequently spreads to other ancient societies in the Old World and was also separately invented multiple uh, times um, in the Old World and in the New World. Uh, the history of early agriculture is one of the appearance and spread of innovations. So you get first cultivation of cereals, then, then other plants, then selective breeding, uh, domestication of animals, uh, and so forth. And all of this makes, for a, makes possible large increases in numbers and population density uh, because the same land can support a much larger number of, uh, of people than uh, it can support uh, a hunter-gatherer population. So over the millennia, the agricultural lifestyle uh, spreads. Now, uh, agriculture makes possible um, huge transformations in human society. So we get sedentary lifestyles, uh, physical accumulation becomes possible, large tools, especially buildings. Um, shortly after agriculture appears, uh, we get walls. <laughs> Why do you need walls? Because somebody might try to come and get your food. Uh, this happens pretty fast, apparently. Uh, we get urbanization, towns and cities, uh, a large agricultural pop hinterland can support a central town, and we get hierarchical societies. Um, so we get aristocracies and priesthoods, and wealth and income inequality all emerge with, with agriculture. Um, and here I have to say something about finance because of my mischosen title. Uh, fire, finance and writing and accounting and debt and so forth emerge with hierarchical societies. And their major, their major uh, innovations, uh, they're enabled by the invention of agriculture, but they don't change the Malthusian equilibrium, uh, which is essentially unchanged. Uh, well, they're, they're essentially unchanged. Um, agriculture enables a, subst a substantial increase in population. So it's around 4 million people worldwide from about 10, at about 10,000 BC, uh, shortly after agriculture first appeared, uh, to about 50 million worldwide in 1,000 BC, um, and about 170 million worldwide uh, in 1 AD. This is a big increase in population growth rates. Um, uh, the the pre-agricultural the, the pre era growth rate is about point, oh, let me see, point oh, 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 0.004% per annum, whereas afterwards, uh, between 10,000 BC and 1 AD, it's about 0.04% per annum. So it's about 100 times faster. Um, and is driven by the, by the displacement of hunter-gatherers, uh, spread of agricultural lifestyle, and improvements in agricultural techniques and, and, and other technologies. Uh, but although world population grows hugely, uh, there's no major change in living standards. If anything, actually, they go down. Um, now, a simple application of the Malthusian model would say this is best interpreted as the natural consequence of an outward movement of the technology schedule, just like I showed you for, for fire. 
Um, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's not as simple as that. Um, first of all, it's not obvious from the perspective of individual hunter-gatherers uh, that farming was actually a better way to make a living. Sam, uh, for, uh, Bo Sam Bowles uh, and, and Jared Diamond and others have pointed out that agriculture was a health and nutrition disaster. Um, hunter-gatherer diets are much healthier and the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is much healthier than the agricultural, than the peasant agricultural lifestyle. Agricultural societies rely on unbalanced high-carb diets, uh, heavy reliance on a few foods. It's poor nutritionally. It exposes farmers to, to greater risk. All you need is one crop failure and you're in big trouble. Um, agriculture is also associated with disease. Many, maybe most, possibly all, I'm not sure, I'm also not an epidemiologist, um, uh, disease, human, disease, major diseases in humans show up as diseases in domesticated animals and jump the species barrier. Um, all this shows up in the archaeological record in the, in the form of uh, uh, bad, bad looking bones, basically, and short people. Um, average stature collapsed with the introduction of agriculture. Um, uh, modern human, uh, modern, sorry, modern Euro Europeans are only now returning to the heights of Ice Age Europeans. Now you notice I'm not particularly tall. Um, I blame, I, I, I blame that the uh, that that peasant diet. I was okay, right now. Uh, moreover, okay, labor bowl, uh, Sam Bowles, who's who is an economist, by the way. Um, uh, has assembled some, some evidence showing that labor productivity by the earliest farmers was, on average, probably lower than foraging. Uh, in other words, hunting, hunting and gathering. Now, this raises a puzzle, of course, uh, because uh, if so, why then did people switch from hunting and gathering, foraging, uh, to farming? Now, Bowles points out that his estimates are of average productivity, um, and so the optimal answer to the decision-making problem faced by these early proto-farmers would have been based on what in the economics jargon we call marginal productivity. Um, in, the jar in, in, this, in the jargon of microeconomics, um, Early adopters of agriculture will allocate some time to foraging and some time to farming until the marginal product of labor is equalized. Um, now, as Bull points out, this just moves the question ahead one step. Um, why did some early populations become mainly farmers? Okay, it's, the, it's basically, it's the same point. Um, if a group became mainly farmers and then ab and abandoned foraging, then average productivity would have been low compared to the groups that were hunter-gatherers. Uh, they would have been better off as individuals abandoning, abandoning this specialization in farming and going back to partial or full um, foraging. Now, Bowles has a kind of speculative answer, uh, but it fits in nicely with the, the Malthusian perspective. It's basically demographics. Uh, he says, first of all, random, random chance, random circumstances facing individual groups would have meant that the conditions made it sensible for some small number of groups to become mainly farmers. Farming is their main activity. Now, once they do that, okay, they're living in a fixed location. And once they're living in a fixed location, the cost of child rearing falls, actually a lot. Um, Hunter-gatherer groups face really serious constraints on birth rates. They're moving around a lot. Um, and babies are a major burden for groups that have to, have to travel. Um, the, so the, so in, the, in, 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 this, in this argument by Bowles, the causality runs from early agriculture in a fixed location to higher birth rates to population growth to more land needed for agricultural communities and the spread of agriculture. Um, the, uh, what, what led to the spread of agriculture was a combination of increasing birth rates, and you can go through the diagram and play with the birth rate line if you want, um, and the movement of the technology schedule. Okay, on to the era of modern economic growth. 
Um, the year of modern economic growth starts with the Industrial Revolution, and as I said, I'll use as a shorthand 1800. Um, in, the, in the West, where the Industrial Revolution started and modern economic growth began, we have a pretty good, we being the, the economics fraternity, have a fairly good understanding now of how it works. Um, the key role in modern economic growth is played by innovation and invention, technological and organizational. And this is a perspective often identified with the great 20th century economist Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, growth accounting is, the, is one of the, part of the jargon. Um, growth accounting exercises show that nearly all economic growth in income per capita and living standards uh, can be attributed eventually to technological progress. And when I say technological progress, I don't mean just technology in the narrow sense of, of machines. I mean organizational innovations as well. Um, uh, Double-entry uh, double bookkeeping is a technological innovation in, 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 this, in this sense. Um, and this growth is generated by a substantial R&D sector. A significant portion of the population is professionally engaged in the generation of, few, of, of new knowledge. And this is different from the Malthusian era. Um, a smallish number of countries have, have, from the rest have joined the West. Uh, so, say, Japan in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, South Korea in the second half of the 20th century. Um, there's a somewhat larger but still small number of countries that are probably in the process of joining the West. Um, and the uh, nature of economic growth in these countries is pretty well understood, and it follows the, the pattern of rapid catch-up growth uh, noted by uh, Thorstein Veblen um, and uh, Alexander Gershenkron. Um, Gershenkron called it the advantages of backwardness. Um, countries can temporarily go, grow very quickly um, by adopting a well-established uh, world best uh, technology. You don't need to, if you're going to, if you're going to introduce uh, mechanization, you don't start with Watt's steam engine. Um, eventually, these countries, when they finish catching up, they slow down and grow at the same rate as everybody else at the technological frontier. That's very obvious in Japan, for example. Many countries, of course, have not uh, or haven't yet started the catching up process. Uh, these countries are still desperately poor. Uh, and they, they, the very poorest see, see in, have standards of living which are not wildly different from those in the Malthusian era. Now, why so many countries are still poor and why they haven't made the breakthrough to modern economic growth is, frankly, and I'm being frank on behalf of the economics fraternity, not really well understood, um, or at least not very well enough at any rate, uh, as the history of policy in this area over the last 50 years, I think, attests. Um, there's a vast literature here, and I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, what I do want to discuss in the time remaining um, is the role of demographics in the emergence of modern economic growth um, and how this relates to uh, innovation and technological progress, generation of memes, um, and uh, then I'll engage in some entertaining, at least entertaining for me, I hope it's entertaining for you, uh, speculation about the Industrial Revolution and historic inevitability. Uh, right. Now, first of all, demographics. Um, demographics play the, a key role in the break between the Malthusian era and the modern era. Um, in, the, in the West, initially after the start of the Industrial Revolution, we see income, we, incomes growing rapidly, population also grows, but then something happens which means a break with the past. Uh, population growth in the West slows down, and this despite technological advances and increases in living standards. Um, there's a fall in birth rates, there's a fall in fertility, which is really extraordinary in scale. This is called the, the demographic transition. 
1820, the fertility rate in England was uh, in excess of 50 births per 1,000 population. Uh, today, uh, by 1900, it's below 30. Today, it's half again. Um, at, the, at the start of the Industrial Revolution, it was common for women to have eight children. Not true anymore. Um, now, why did birth rates fall? This is a huge question. I'm not going to go into it. I'll just mention a few points, uh, uh, or just, yeah, I'll list a few points. Um, modern co contraception, um, opportunity cost of having children uh, for, for women, uh, which uh, uh, industrialization means an increasing role of women in the workforce, and there's some evidence that this increasing, these increasing opportunities for women led to postponement of, of her having children and a smaller number of children. Um, and there's also the investment of, uh, the nature of investment in children. Um, it's been suggested that because of developments in education and the need for skills and training, parents voluntarily reduce fertility in order to be able to invest more in a smaller number of children, so you get a quantity-quality trade-off. Um, okay. Um, population size and population growth is also important for understanding the generation of knowledge. Um, new innovations and uh, inventions today generate rapid economic growth, not only because of the increase in the numbers of people engaged, uh, but also because of uh, in, in, in innovative activity, inventive activity, but also because of the nature of knowledge. Uh, knowledge is special. Um, uh, when something is invented, when an idea is, uh, uh, arises, it can be reproduced and, uh, costlessly. Um, the uh, economics jargon for this is non-rivalrousness, which is terrible jargon, and I apologize on behalf of the fraternity for it. Um, but, well, there it is. Um, ideas can be consumed by one person uh, without reducing the availability of the idea for others. Uh, now, this point was uh, known uh, very well in Malthus's time, um, and I'm, you could tell from my accent, I'm an American. I have to get an American in here. Okay. Uh, Thomas Jefferson makes the point quite nicely, and in much nicer language than, than the modern economics fraternity. But you would expect that from someone who wrote most, most of the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. Um, uh, if nature has made any one thing less susceptible than all others of exclusive property is the action of thinking power called an idea. Its peculiar character, too, is that no one possesses the less because everyone else possesses the whole of it. Okay. An important implication of this is that the speed at which technology advances increases as the population grows. Uh, the more people there are in the world, the more thinking and experimenting is done, the more ideas are generated, and once, once these good ideas are generated, they spread costlessly through, through the population. Um, and this is one way how uh, human history differs from that of other species. Uh, genetic change doesn't have the same, or nearly the same, I should say, uh, tendency to accelerate with population size. Um, okay. Uh, did I go backwards or forwards? Nope. I went... There we go. Yes. Um, and we act, there's actually some evidence for, for this relationship in the Malthusian era, and I mentioned it before. Um, population growth in the Malthusian era gradually accelerates over time, as at least as best as we can tell. Um, there is the, also the possibility of technological regress, which seems to be more of a danger the smaller the population. And a nice story that relates this is the history of, um, 
uh, the, uh, of, Australasia, uh, of Australia and Tasmania and Flinders Island, which were all connected uh, during the Ice Age. So they were a shared population, uh, shared technology. Then the Ice Age comes along, sea levels go up. Tasmania is isolated with a much smaller population, um, and they experience technological regress. Their, their technology is, uh, when, when first encountered by Europeans, is noticeably less developed than the, um, those of the um, Australians on, the, on mainland Australia. And the Flinders Island, Flinders Island is a little island in between Tasmania and Australia, and that was a really tiny island. Um, and the Flinders Islanders just went extinct. Okay. Now, um, the break with the Malthusian era in terms of the creation of new knowledge is, of course, not just a mechanical connection with the large populations uh, with large populations of the 1600s, 1800s compared to the early era. There's a fairly sharp break that translates into a jump in growth rates of income and uh, income per capita. And this is basically, the, why did the Industrial Revolution happen? Uh, and why, and why then, and why there? Um, it's hugely debated. Uh, there are lots of arguments. I have no time to go through them in any detail. I barely have time to mention any of the contenders. Um, uh, institutions, meaning uh, property rights, limited government, for example. Um, the co-location of coal, and the incentives to use coal in the form of high wages, so that um, basically uh, coal and machinery are, are substituted for um, expensive labor. Um, the Enlightenment. Uh, and the emergence of a substantial innovative sector, meaning persons engaged in science and engineering, um, and even genetics and cultural transmission of values. This is Greg Clark's idea about fertility patterns um, in England. Rich commoners had more offspring, he argues. But frankly, we really don't know. Um, the more interesting question for me, and the one where I hope to ha uh, with the one that I'm going to finish with, um, is uh, was the Industrial Revolution inevitable? Um, now, of course, this is unanswerable. Uh, but it's hard to resist the temptation to speculate, and I will give in to the temptation completely, um, and I'll ask it in science fiction alternate history terms, Strassian terms. You might be, some of you might be familiar with the science fiction author Charles Strauss. Um, so, say England were coalless. What if England had no coal? Um, or maybe the era of classical antiquity hadn't ended when the Western Roman Empire and, uh, and the Western Roman Empire survived and assimilated the latest. Uh, uh, wave of immigrants. I can see two different scenarios. Um, in scenario one, um, we get uh, population growth um, and increasing returns, increasing returns in the generation of knowledge, meaning that somewhere in the world, maybe in China, maybe, maybe in Europe, who knows, um, there's a tipping point reached. Modern technology-led growth starts up. Population initially grows rapidly and then slows down. Dot, dot. That's what Douglas Adams would call a parallel universe that is actually parallel. Um, in scenario two, um, there's no tipping point. Um, knowledge continues to accumulate, but slowly, and population uh, grows slowly, but never slows down, and living standards, on average, stay at the Malthusian level. This is a strange, unparalleled parallel universe, um, which is agrarian in the distribution of income, so most people are extremely poor, and there's an elite that is very rich, but is still accumulating knowledge and technology. Um, now, okay, uh, I... Th uh, I, th uh, I think we can actually say something a little more concrete um, if we change the hypothetical to something which is really science fictional, which is what if the world were coalless, or say more more probably solid fossil fuelless? Uh, coal and other solid fossil fuels um, have a huh huge energy density, uh, energy per kilogram. 
um, and they're very abundant uh, uh, compared to the uh, preceding uh, alternatives, wood burning, water wheels, um, whatever. Now, how important was energy in the Industrial Revolution? Um, uh, Tony Wrigley and others have argued that the answer is very important, um, and I agree. Um, so scenario one seems to me to be much more unlikely in this hypothetical world. Um, I, I think my, my instinct is that, the, um, is that energy uh, is a crucial ingredient in this, in this tipping point. And uh, scenario two seems much more likely. Um, we would eventually have, a, a, this, in this unparalleled parallel universe, um, a world of uh, highly, uh, a highly world, developed world in the sense of mathematics and optics and music and art, things that... Uh, that don't require mechanization and industry and energy, um, but but and still agrarian uh, agrarian economies with with extreme inequality. Um, and uh, on that uh, science fictional note, I finish. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.